Welcome to another episode of the Worthy Physician podcast for physicians by a physician, combating physician burnout through awareness to reignite passion for medicine. In addition to hearing great pearls, tips, or tricks that you can utilize, you can now also earn CME by reflecting on what you learned from this podcast episode. The link is in the show notes. Is wellness a destination or is it a journey? Or is it a state of being? What role does it play with the longevity and recruitment in medicine of physicians and other staff? We dive into wellness and why it matters in today's episode. The soul becomes dyed with the color of its thoughts. Marcus Aurelius, Meditations. All right. So for the listeners, I'm the host, Sapna Shahok, and today I have Peter, Peter Yellowlease here with me. And Peter, could you please introduce yourself? Certainly. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Sapna, for having me on your podcast. This is really, really excellent. I'm a psychiatrist in California, based in Sacramento. I um, actually am retired from practicing psychiatry for the last few months, but for the last 20 years, I've been a professor of psychiatry at UC Davis, where I was also the chief wellness officer. So I've spent a lot of time in recent years working on the well-being of physicians and how can we in their well-being in this very difficult time, not just during the pandemic, but obviously going forward with uh, things like, uh, you know, the Great Resignation, as it's called, and, and the mental health pandemic that's following the, current, the COVID pandemic. Uh, and, uh, and, and, of course, the, uh, I think, in my view, you know, unreasonably competitive and chaotic uh, and dysfunctional healthcare system that we have in this country. Seeing that you've had a career that is so well-versed in this, can you please expand on that? It, it baffles me. To me, it, it makes absolutely no sense. Sure. Well, I think let's just talk about how we respond to the healthcare system first as physicians. I mean, the first thing we have to do is learn how it works and learn how to change it and learn how to survive in it. We know that physicians as individuals, as are many other healthcare providers, are very resilient. Uh, it's really hard to get into medical school and pass all the exams and get through residency. They, these are very high bars. So as a group of professionals, we're highly resilient people, and yet we get a lot of burnout. We have tragic numbers of suicides, uh, and we have you know substantial amounts of, of alcohol and substance use disorders uh, among our colleagues. Um, and... In my view, these are uh, often because of the dysfunctional system that we work in and the way that uh, over the last 30 or 40 years, physicians in particular have lost more control of their lives um, and have been particularly um, put in positions where they're more frequently employed in large health systems with, with less uh, individual capacity to make their own decisions. Um, now, I think you actually can make your own decisions in, in large health systems, but uh, not all of them allow you to do that. Um, so so how do we, what do we, what should we be doing about this? Well, in my view, uh, and speaking as a, a, a sort of ex-chief wellness officer, the first thing we've got to do is learn about our situation and learn about uh, this whole issue of uh, well-being and how do we improve our own situation? Uh, how do we look at health systems and understand them and understand their dysfunction? And how do we change them and, uh, and improve our own situation? And so with that in mind, uh, I set up a, a fellowship in clinician well-being 
um, based uh, at both UC Davis and UC Irvine. We've run four cohorts of fellows through that uh, fellowship now over the last four years, about 180 people in total, of which about 80% have been physicians. Um, and this is a six-month non-ACGME uh, fellowship, but it's pretty comprehensive. It takes people about three hours per week uh, to work on it, and it consists of several components. The first component is an online program uh, of a series of modules with uh, quizzes and uh, that, that people run through. Uh, the second component is uh, every two weeks there is a live webinar and there's also uh, a conference uh, partway through the, the six-month fellowship. And then thirdly, uh, everyone has to do a project on a, an area of well-being and we give mentorship to that project and then have two days of presentations at the end of the uh, six months. Um, so it's a very comprehensive uh, program where, where people learn about uh, the issues in health systems that really affect individual physicians and nurses. Um, and and how can we change that? How can we both protect ourselves, but more importantly, change the health system that is really the cause of a lot of the, the burnout and the mental health uh, problems that, that uh, many people have? The reason for, for setting that up was simply because uh, I discovered very rapidly as a chief wellness officer that you can't do this all yourself. Uh, UC Davis, we have 2,000 physicians, um, and uh, you know, there's a few of us in, uh, in in sort of senior positions with uh, the the um, thoughts of the the health of the uh, various providers, you know, as part of our core work, but very few. And so I wanted to create a critical mass of physicians in our system who really had a good understanding of uh, the whole issue of well-being and how we should respond to that. Um, and that's been very successful. And we've had about 40 out of the 180 uh, from our cohorts, uh, 40 or so from our own health system have gone through uh, this particular fellowship. And we now have that group of people within our health system who can work within their departments, who can work uh, as clinical champions, uh, who can be on various different committees uh, and who can influence the uh, the sort of CEO and, and uh, his cabinet uh, into developing policies and practice practices that are less focused on on making more money, but but more focused on you know trying to be perhaps less competitive as a health system, and uh, and uh, in obviously in particular uh, putting in uh, policies that actually support uh, the well being of the staff, because in reality if you don't have a, uh, a staff that feels uh, supported and, and well, you're not going to have uh, a good set of patient outcomes. So, so I think to me, the first thing we've got to do is to really think about education and self-education or taking programs like the one that we set up at UC Davis. Um, there are other programs around, but I don't think there's anything as comprehensive as ours or as, or as detailed. Um, and and we need to have this sort of education spread far and wide through our systems, so that you know we can, uh, as physicians, look at the the level of dysfunction around us in a more objective way, and not just complain and get upset, but actually change it. And I would say that from what I am hearing you say, a lot of this would be to understand the dysfunctional system and how. Deeply, it is dysfunctional, not just at the surface level, but it sounds like a deeper dive 
And then almost working from within the institution, if it, if it allows, is that correct? Yes, that's right. And, and being influential within the, within the institution. I mean, you know, the competitive nature of the, of the American healthcare system clearly works against the well-being of uh, all providers of all types. I mean, what's been really fascinating in Sacramento, what you know, over the last few years, has been how um, that uh, competitive nature has actually reduced. And you know, here I give great credit to the CEOs of the various health systems in our region, um, who have actually tried to deliberately get together and to be and to put in less competitive policies. And actually, that's not terribly difficult to do if you think about it. If you actually decide that uh, you know you've got X number of hospitals or health systems in an area, you can agree that you know one hospital will have an expertise in this level, this type of care. Another will have an expertise in a different set of levels of care. One will take more patients, perhaps, who need intensive care. Others will do more minor surgery. Um, and and you can actually start um, deliberately uh, taking the health systems of the hospitals and saying, well, these are the areas of, of real expertise that these particular institutions should have. Because in reality nowadays, medicine is so complicated and it's, it's become so difficult to practice. Very few hospitals or institutions can be expert in everything. And certainly that's the case in, in, in rural areas. And so... You know, in my view, if you in fact have a, a deliberate sort of uh, facilitated process, perhaps between various different hospitals or institutions, you can actually um, get a, a much better outcome by trying to look at everybody's preferred areas of expertise and having that as as, as an open issue. So that one hospital refers particular types of patients to the other one, and vice versa. That way you tend to have less pressure on the clinicians. People aren't trying to do unreasonable things that they're perhaps not trained for. Potentially even you can have physicians working at several different hospitals at the same time under similar contracts. So what you're talking about is instead of one hospital trying to do the other, more of a collaboration. Right. And to each yeah. hospital taking their own areas of expertise and making sure that they're somewhat different so that... Uh, there isn't uh, so much uh, com competitiveness. And certainly as someone who's worked in a rural area, I mean, I know that, you know, that's really important uh, for, for doctors, you know, such as uh, in the situation you've described yourself. And uh, whereby, you know, you maybe want to have doctors working at uh, several of the institutions in town um, so that, uh, you know, they don't all have to try and uh, recruit the same subspecialists or the same people with particular areas of expertise. Right. Because, you know, I, again, that kind of goes back to the, to the non-compete clause. I think that's a big driver. So that way one hospital doesn't steal the talent of the other, taking away revenue and taking away patients. I mean, here in, here in Kansas, that's a, that's a real thing. Um, as far as it can push you to, a, to another undesirable city or town if you, if you have a non-compete and that means uprooting a family. Um, so a lot of these things, even though it's job related, really, re really reflect and disrupt the uh, the physician and their and their and their families. Um, I have small kids, and you know, if I were in that situation, um, 
That would, I think I had shared with you, Dan, that would be 50, 60 miles. And that is not where I would want my kids to go to school. That is not where I would want to to raise them. Based, and I brought them back here to a smaller town because it's safer and the schools, we have good schools, et cetera. So how do you, how would one get the CEO of a said hospital to even look at this and say, without saying, hey, doc, you're crazy? I think, um, yeah, but I do think personally that the whole issue of non-complete causes is is crazy. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. I, I That's not something I'd actually heard of before. It sounds to me like that's a Kansas type thing um, and may occur in other areas, but it, it does seem a bit crazy to me yeah. uh, because all it's likely to do is drive doctors out of town ultimately. Uh, and um, so, you know, I think to, the the issue is that, you know, the, the CEOs should be getting together and should be deciding which of the areas of expertise they want to develop and they want to have. And they should acknowledge that, um, you know, there is likely enough um, work for everyone, um, but they've just got to negotiate which are the areas that they wish their hospital to be the primary experts in and which are the areas that they, they're not going to focus on so much. Um, and and then, you know, maybe renegotiate that every few years, but deliberately try and be more collaborative um, and perhaps even, as I say, set up um, a number of probably subspecialist type contracts whereby the same doctors work at both C-suite a lot of times. And I know that for a rural access hospital, it's about keeping doors open um, we're a nonprofit, but let's say for the larger systems like HCA, you know, if they look at the bottom line and that's it, how, how do you circumvent that or word against that? Does, that? does that make sense? Yeah, I think, I think. look, people have got to understand that there's going to be increasing shortages of doctors. Um, and you know, in many different specialties, but particularly in primary care, um, you know, in uh, internal medicine and psychiatry, um, uh, and, uh, you know, in some of the subspecialty areas. And um, that's not going to change. That's going to be a long-term situation. And, um, you know, it's going to be increasingly hard for uh, people to recruit. It's, it's, you know, it's obviously it's already difficult to recruit in many rural areas, um, and that 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 situation is going to get worse. Um, so, any rural hospital that wants to recruit people is going to have to try and make you know their their, their work situation um, acceptable for uh, the incoming physicians. And that, and, and what physicians nowadays are looking for is is more flexibility, um, uh, perhaps not necessarily working with conventional nine to five hours, particularly the younger generation of physicians, um, you know, who uh, expect uh, that uh, their services are going to be more digital as well, that they maybe want to work from home part of the time. Um, and and really, the only way that people are going to be able to recruit, um, you know, good long-term uh, physicians, I think, is by is by really changing the way that some of the, our work is actually done, and and ultimately being much more flexible. Um, and you know, these smaller hospitals are just not going to survive 
without any doctors if they don't do that. No, I'd agree with you. I think we have to evolve with the times because that that is what will keep the doors open. And like we have been talking about beforehand, um, ensuring that the staff, whether it be physician, nurses, everybody that walks into that hospital to to work, that they're taking care of them, they feel like they're part of the team. Um, that culture of you matter because at the end of the day, if the workers are not valued, they will walk, no matter who it is. No, that's right. And we've seen that with the pandemic um, across the country, particularly with nurses and with nurses who work in, uh, in, in intensive care and emergency departments, you know, who have had a really hard time uh, in the last uh, three years. And, you know, very many of them have decided they, they don't necessarily want to quit nursing, but they do want to quit, you know, high stress nursing. And so they've taken, you know, jobs that are, um, you know, still very valid, good jobs, but they're not using necessarily their, you know, intensive care experience anymore. And, and so it's, it's going to be increasingly difficult to recruit um, people to those sorts of roles. Do you think that the hours need to be cut back, not only for nurses, but physicians, physicians as well, in order to retain staff, but also to uh, increase longevity of a particular person with, uh, within that hospital or within that company or even uh, self-employed? Uh, because like in my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation, a lot of people worked for one company and one company only. And now it seems like my generation are younger. Um, it's about every couple of years they're moving on, whether it be physician or, or nurse, et cetera. I think that's right. And that's what I mean by flexibility. So I think there's going to be less and less people working just for one, uh, one hospital for many years. I mean, you know, your generation, I, you know, want to work from home. They often want to have several different employers. They may like to do telemedicine for one or two days a week from home for one employer, perhaps in a different state, um, and then do some inpatient work, you know, another one or two days, and then maybe a couple of clinics. Um, but they may also want to take every Tuesday off because they've got certain things they want to do, and they'd rather work on a Saturday afternoon. Um, uh, or they'd rather have four-hour shifts rather than eight-hour shifts. Uh, because that fits in with babysitters better. Um, so, so I think um, you know we have to start thinking now about much more flexibility across all of the healthcare professions. Um, and 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 that if we do that, I think the hours that people work will become slightly less of an issue. Um, because in fact, most people in healthcare are hardworking. Um, uh, they want to do a good job. They're not there to just work 25 hours a week and to be expect and, and to expect to be paid for a 40 hour week. Uh, and most people are actually in healthcare because, you know, they have a commitment to a really meaningful job and a meaningful life and a meaningful role. And, and that, and, and, and focusing on the meaning of our jobs is really, really important for all of our well being. So I, th I actually think that. You know, if you can, if you can make life more flexible for 
um, providers and uh, ensure that they still have that meaning in, in their work, um, there's no reason why they should suddenly start working a lot less hours, quite honestly. Uh, they may just work differently. And I think, to me, that's the way we should be going, not trying to necessarily reduce hours, um, but, but change them. And I love where you're going with this. Um, I was just thinking about and talking to my medical students this week about the culture of medicine. You know, it's quite antiquated where we expect physicians to be on call all the time and uh, to drop everything at the drop of a hat instead of being a, of a complete person. And, um, you know, that culture started way a hundred, hundred plus years ago. And now patients are more complex. People are living longer. Um, the treatments, the treatment algorithms are becoming very complex. And um, what you said is absolutely beautiful. And I appreciate that. I really do appreciate that. Well, well thank you for saying that. And I think just, you know, the culture of medicine is actually how we start our fellowship course. Um, and I actually teach on the culture of medicine and how do we, how do we change the culture of medicine? I mean, if you look at one very simple aspect of it, uh, the Hippocratic Oath. Um, that all medical students take when they graduate from a medical school, there is nothing in that about looking after yourself. Um, and, uh, and whilst a lot of medical schools have their students, you know, change the oath and put in their own, uh, wording, uh, for it, um, it, it, it doesn't tend to attract the interest of, um, comments that, that are going to, you know, make people really think about the importance of focusing on themselves and their own health uh, and maintaining that as a, as a professional requirement to practice. I mean, the reality is if you're drinking too much, you're depressed and you're burnt out, you can't practice well. You can't do a good job with your patients. And we all went into medical school with that in, with that, with the aim of doing a good job for our patients. So, you know, just like we send car, cars in for a service, we have to do our own self-servicing. And, and, and that actually does mean changing the culture of medicine, because I think the culture of medicine is also dysfunctional. Um, and uh, so we can't blame other people for that. We have to look inward on that one and really take a, a long, hard look at how do we work better as physicians um, to ensure that we remain well. I really appreciate your insight, and I'm actually very interested in uh, in your coursework. So if the listener wanted to reach out to you or learn more about your fellow about the fellowship either at UC Davis or UCI, where could they find you? The easiest way, first of all, my email is p-m-y-e-l-l-o-w-l-e-e-s P-M-Y-E-L-L-O-W-L-E-E-S at ucdavis.edu. You can email me direct if you're interested in doing a, doing a fellowship course. And, and that applies to any sort of any clinician uh, from any discipline. Um, but if you just Google Clinician Wellbeing Fellowship, uh, UC Davis, um, it'll come up. Uh, and uh, our applications are actually open right now. It's a six-month program that starts in April and goes through to uh, the end of September. And so it's easy enough to find just on Google. But if you prefer to email me direct, that's completely fine. We would welcome people inquiring about this. I really do appreciate your time and your expertise. And I'm a, 
I was really looking forward to this to this call. So thank you so much. Good. Well, thank you, Sapner, and good luck with your podcast and good for you for doing uh, what you're doing. Thanks for joining us. If you have enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, share it with a friend, because we could all use a little bit of normalizing the topic of burnout, knowing that we're not alone.